Hi, everybody. It's Richard Zwick of the Green Peak. And joining us today, we have Arden Lee from Weed Maps. Welcome aboard, Arden. Hey, Richard. Thanks for having me. So, Arden, you know, Weed Maps is one of the best known names in the industry with regards to consumers in general. And people associate it and understand, you know, it's the means by which so many consumers connect between themselves and their supplier, their supplier being a dispensary, being an, an online uh, ordering or anything else. But Weed Maps is a lot more than that. And it's growing into many different areas. Why don't you just, you know, tell everybody a little bit about what else really constitutes Weed Maps today? Yeah, that's that's a great place to start. And so, Richard, to that point, uh, you know, taking a step back, how we like to describe ourselves is we are one of the oldest and largest tech platforms exclusively servicing the cannabis industry, primarily mm-hmm. consumers, retailers, and brands, as you know. Yep. And to your question around how users of cannabis products think about ourselves, on the consumer side, a lot of folks associate WeMaps as being a commerce-driven marketplace. Right. And so what I mean by that is we obviously have a uh, selection of cannabis retailers and brands and products for users to shop. We have 18,000 plus businesses that are listed on the site, over 5 million products, that kind of thing. Um, But why... It's but there's a lot so, more in behind that. It's not just yep. the consumer phase. And that's what people don't get. That's right. That's right. And so the reason why um, I'm glad you phrased it in terms of what's behind that consumer veneer is there is so much that goes behind the scenes mm-hmm. to make a marketplace uh, function in a regular way within cannabis. Right. And what I mean by that is, um, as we all know better than everyone, cannabis products are unlike any other consumer good. Right. Um, super highly regulated. Uh, they are at the end of the day, um, uh, they have a broad range of clinical effects, a broad range of form factor skews, that kind of thing. Yep. And there is not yet a normalized um, set of brands that have gained a lot of consumer traction. There's a lot of kind of emerging brands, depending on which state market you're in. And um, as we all know shopping for can- for cannabis is incredibly difficult if you're if you're a new entry a new consumer into the category, and so to your question around what's happening behind the scenes, what we're essentially doing is taking a lot of what's um, messy data, non normalized data, normalizing it in a way such that when we surface it on our marketplace to users, they're seeing all the things that they would want to know about what informs a product decision, right? right. They're seeing not only the product information, uh, pictures, description, user reviews, but we're also hitting them with things like reported clinical effects, leveraging our user-generated content, reported strain flavors, price per weight, CBD, THC potency, in addition to other things like brand verified, which is a trust and safety measure that we have in our marketplace, and the ability to price compare and so on and so forth. And so to your point about what else is happening behind the scenes, we're working with a lot of that kind of messy data. And what I mean by that is unlike other e-commerce driven marketplaces that work with regular uh, way brands that are very well established with consumers, we don't have access to product catalogs, normalized um, information that we can tag such that when we're showcasing that information to our users, it's, it's, it's um, in a way that they're used to seeing. And so that's what we do behind the scenes, uh, given that we've been doing for this, this for 10 plus years. The other thing that we do behind the scenes is what we call WM Business. And what WM Business is essentially, it's a set of e-com, uh, we call them e-com enablement power tools. So think right. about them as a 
a suite of software solutions mm -hmm. that essentially make the marketplace work better for our retailer and brand clients. And when it works better for our retailer and brand clients, it works better for our users. What and I mean by that. That's more where I was going is, you know, that, mm -hmm. that backend, you know, it's not just point of sale. It actually is that intelligence where you're taking all that data and you're able to extract insights that help the retailer understand the product mix better and the consumer demand as it varies from area to area, but also can trace all the way back to the producers and the growers to understand what to produce, what, you know, and in theory, you can get to the point of explaining to people what's going to be overproduced and what's under, under available that they could actually earn higher margins off of in the future. How far are you going to take that? Yeah, so you, you touch on a very relevant point. We, we have a lot of that type of data or the potential to extract that data. What I'd say is we currently do not, um, let me put it this way, package that data in a way that really kind of leverages uh, uh, those insights yet right. um, as, as you know, explicitly as you called out. So for example, let me give you one pain point that we hear about a lot from our brand clients, right? Uh, so to the point about, you know, regular way, brands in other categories um, have access to very robust information around sell-through trends, right? Yep. Uh, most consumer packaged goods brands know exactly with their third-party wholesale retail partners. This partner it has a sell-through of X on my SKUs that they're carrying as opposed to this other retail partner over here. And so, you know, when they're thinking through uh, where they need to clear inventory across the channel, they're able to kind of work with um, more surgical precision in terms of directing uh, promotion activity and clearance activity amongst their retailers or allocating product to higher sell-through, higher velocity retailers, right? right? In cannabis, that doesn't exist, right? And so Absolutely. a lot of the, yeah. yeah, and a lot of these brands are flying blind in the sense of they don't know exactly what the sell-through is across their different third-party wholesale or retail partners. Um, and that makes uh, allocation decisions very challenging in addition to kind of promotional and clearance. Now, we have a lot of the kind of data to synthetically create um, of you around sell-through. When you think about like engagement trends in terms of our first-party user data, how they're hovering over different products, engaging with different products, how they're ordering, how they're um, adding to cart, uh, and engaging with different different menu items uh, of any given retailer uh, and any given brand's products. Now, one of the things that um, we've been working through is how do we uh, create more of that visibility around exactly um, that pain point around like what exactly is happening with the end user as it relates to brands' products with sell-through uh, across a, a different region with with different retailers, right? And so right. those are the types of things that are possible with um, if you're stitching together the data uh, appropriately, and that's something that um, we are we are working through as as a as a business. Owner, so. Well, yeah, because you know it, from a financial perspective. It the more data you can provide back to the cons your consumers, your customers at both ends, the more valuable and the more you can earn off of each piece over the time, right? That's right. That's right. I, I think those earnings are your primary concern, aren't they? <laughs> well, listen, the way we kind of think about it is if we're continuing to drive value for our clients, which right. all starts with um, driving demand, within our marketplace on the user side, then right. the earnings piece is just kind of the natural output of that. And circling back to your your some of the, the uh, discussion that we had around data, it's not only data um, more directly that we're that uh, we have the potential to kind of put in our in our clients' hands to inform you know basic operational decisions, but you think about also 
the ability that we have um, to leverage um, our unique data sets to power our marketplace, right? And right. so, um, you know, the, the, the benefit of our data sets is uh, we, of course, have transaction level information, uh, but we're also able to pair that with first party user data, you know, user observational data around how they're starting their discovery journeys. Are they shopping location-based first, brand uh, first, uh, product-based right. first? Are they've heard, have they heard about a certain strain? Are they searching uh, based on certain search terms and the like? And you can imagine that um, in, in a world where uh, e-commerce experiences are becoming increasingly more personalized and hyper-local, that having access to that trove of data around how folks are at a hyper-local basis navigating through their discovery journeys is something that uh, could create really powerful personalized experiences. That's some of the types of things that we're ideating on at the moment. Well, it, it you know, it absolutely does. And it'd be interesting to, to understand because on one aspect of it is because the industry is still so new in so many ways, brands are still rapidly developing. And how are you seeing the searches and the, the customer um, customer trends with regards to searching for brands ahead of or differently than by region or anything else, where before they would have looked for product close to me? Is there more and more move towards brands? And how, you know, how do you see that evolving over the next year or so? Yeah, so we um, are still based on the data. And again, every region's mm-hmm. different. Uh, every market has its own nuances, but we're still seeing more of our users start their journeys based on things like um, price, potency, right. clinical effects, as opposed to brands. Now, like any other consumer-driven category, ultimately, we think a lot of these um, markets will move towards more of that brand-first type shopping experience, but we're not there yet as an industry. And you know, some of that is a result of kind of where we are from a regulatory standpoint um, and the, you know, the, the challenges that, have, that brands have in terms of just reaching users, um, getting residents out there, and then also reaching users across multiple um, different markets and states and the like. Yeah. Uh, but part of it is it's just the nascency of the industry where, you know, even with our users and our users tend to be the most they're more educated generally, like they're active and they're there. Yeah, yeah. It's just, I, I always, you know, brands start becoming synonymous with solutions and people start looking for brands because of an effect. And so you'd see the early effect of a brand building across the whole country long in advance of anybody else. And when that happens, it actually is an incredibly positive sign for the industry as a whole, because it's a level of recognition acceptance that, is beyond that which exists today. That's right. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. So it'd be interesting to to look at that. Uh, you know, as from your perspective, I'm sure, because it allows you to also do a lot of planning based on that evolutionary curve, and using cycles in other businesses. Yeah. Yeah, yeah and, and that's partly why uh, we've talked pretty publicly and openly about. Um, we think there's a big opportunity for the industry with brands yeah. and. Uh, I think uh, as regulations continue to evolve, that will help uh, kind of ease the uh, the road towards more brand rec- recognition by users. But part of it, I think, is also they need to be enabled with the typical kind of tools, e-com enablement tools that uh, most other brands have in any other given category. So, again, back to what we were talking about earlier, Absolutely. insights, 
yeah. with the user, insights yep. with their uh, retailer partners, but also uh, the ability to reach users very effectively in a very direct manner to tell their stories directly, as opposed to a lot of the kind of inefficient user acquisition channels that these businesses have access to today. Right. No, and that's incredibly, you know, incredibly true. Arden, we do have to take a short break, but we're going to be sure. back in a moment again with Arden Lee from Weedmaps on the Green Peak. I'm Richard Zwicky. The Green Peak will climb back into your podcast player after we play some messages from our sponsors. And we're back on the Green Peak with Arden Lee from, who's the Chief Financial Officer of Weedmaps. And Arden, you know, in, over the last year, um, Weed Maps has gone through the SPAC process, You've, which was undoubtedly a very interesting one. I know I've spoken to a number of them in the past, and you know it's it's a different process than going public through other vehicles, and yet it's very similar. How'd that uh, how'd that transform your business in terms of that process versus a more traditional uh, IPO? Or yeah, yeah. Well, great question. Let me start off with uh, which is a typical question that most companies ask themselves, because uh, I view DSPAC versus IPO as just the kind of mechanism to go public, but it, exactly. starts, with why, it starts with the why go public, right? Which is, I think, yep. uh, implicit in part of your question. And we're one of those businesses where if there is criteria for what the typical reasons are for a business going public, we check the box and all of that. Meaning right. we wanted to raise primary capital. We wanted to provide some liquidity for our existing holders. Uh, we viewed this uh, very much as a way to continue uh, recruiting uh, new human capital and really kind of incentivizing um, our existing uh, uh, teams. Right. We viewed this as a branding event for us as a company, uh, especially being uh, kind of somewhat in a class of one as being one of the true kind of only tech platforms of scale to be NASDAQ listed servicing cannabis. And so, you know, for us, the, the real debate was, well, what's the right mechanism um, no. or what's the right path towards going public? And, you know, for us, there, there was there was a combination of different factors, which is, you know, we'd studied the IPO route and we'd met with investors, public company type investors over the years. And, uh, you know, the challenge that we had always um, debated in our minds was uh, we are like any other e-com uh, commerce driven marketplace meets vertical SaaS business model. There's a lot of those out there yep. uh, that are publicly traded across all different types of end markets. Uh, but we are the only ones that do what we do within cannabis. And right. even though um, we're NASDAQ listed, uh, you know, the, the, the challenge is always a bit of when any company goes public, getting investors that truly appreciate the long-term opportunity with a given company. And so for us, that meant targeting folks that understood marketplace slash vertical SaaS type business models that also had an appreciation for the growth that's inherent with uh, the cannabis end markets. And so as we considered all those different uh, uh, fact patterns and decision uh, uh, trees, uh, at that point in time, we were also getting inbounded uh, by different groups. And as we started engaging with some of these groups, we met a great partner in uh, the Silver Spike Acquisition Corps, uh, right. Scott Gordon and his team there. Yep. Uh, very complimentary in terms of, of their macro view of where cannabis is headed uh, mm -hmm. and, and how we think about the world. And as we were getting better educated around the DSPAC process, we realized here's a process where we can spend instead of 45 minutes over the week, over a week and a half with 
how many number of accounts, we can spend upwards of six weeks over multiple calls, several hours with essentially the same types of accounts that we would target in a regular way IPO process. And we thought that would serve us well, because a lot of the folks that would appreciate our business model haven't necessarily uh, spent time studying cannabis. A lot of folks that um, understand cannabis weren't necessarily savvy to uh, the nuances of a marketplace uh, and software business model. And so that's ultimately what drove um, the decision. What we liked about the DSPAC process was the ability to really take our time to kind of curate our shareholder base. And yep. if you look at our top holders, a number of them are thought leaders within the technology space. They're thought leaders within the growth space, not necessarily um, known within the industry as or within the capital markets as cannabis investors. We, of course, have cannabis investors as well. Of course. Uh, they appreciate what we're doing in the business, but but that's that's really what drove the decision. So. Well, and, you know, you touched on something really interesting there. Um, very, you know, that people often under, underestimate with a public process. You know, it's not just a financing event. It is a branding event that is incredibly powerful because the market starts speaking about you, not you having to tell the market what you're about in the same way. And so your broadcast channel becomes much uh, more greatly amplified than would have otherwise. And your stock becomes a capital that, you know, it's like cash. You're trading it for other companies as you're going through mergers and acquisitions, which private companies are really limited in what they can do because they have to go and find the cash to make it possible. That's right. That's right. And, and to that point, actually, Richard, uh, uh, I didn't mention actually as one of the reasons why to go public is to have that public currency, That's uh, right. which is our stock. And so you hit on a great point. And listen, we've been actively leveraging that currency. Uh, as you, you you probably know, we, we executed on a couple of M&A transactions yep. in uh, Q3 of last year, uh, bolt-on transactions that uh, were more capabilities that we were bringing in-house and re- are very complementary to our marketplace and our WM business uh, subscription offering. And uh, listen, given our positioning within the industry, and we've spoken about this publicly, we tend to be on the receiving end of a lot of inbounds around either investments or acquisitions and the like. And I think yeah. having a public currency, especially on the uh, being NASDAQ listed, uh, uh, has served us well. Yeah, no, it absolutely does. I mean, it's so, how so many of the you know larger companies in other spaces have, have driven their growth because it's hard to drive everything from inside. But when you have those approaches, you start developing a, a partnership program and a strategic partners, and some of those become great acquisitions and others become a great part of your ecosystem to help you build but they stay separate. So, you know, that's great. So, you know, as you mentioned, you've done a couple of mergers and acquisitions since the, uh, the activity, but what are you looking at, you know, over the next year? Because there's always a lot of changes coming up and there's, uh, you know, things we all need to look at as transformational events that are on the horizon and we need to prepare for. Is there sectors or areas within the industry that you're paying more attention to because of other changes you can see happening. And there's businesses which could be complementary today that really become critical in the future without naming on any, obviously. Yeah, yeah, sure, sure. So, you know, when we think about M&A and strategic opportunities to pull forward growth or drive a kind of inorganic growth, it tends to be less a function of either us seeing some regulatory development and wanting to get ahead of that. Of course, we do that in our own business in terms of how we think about product roadmap prioritization and the like. 
it also tends to be less of us saying, hey, here's a region of uh, the country or another re uh, 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 foreign country where we'd like to make a market share play by consolidating uh, another player. It's, so it tends to be less of, of those those flavors of uh, strategic rationale in, in decision-making around our M&A pipeline. Right. Where we tend to focus more is um, when we see something that is an interesting capability that hasn't yet scaled, but is an interesting technology solution or capability that is very complementary with what our marketplace and our WM business solution is all about. And we have the ability to really bring that in-house, establish uh, cross-selling and synergies with the rest of our suite and leveraging our sales force and leveraging our market footprint. Those are the types of opportunities that excite us. So for example, the two acquisitions that we completed, one was for a CRM solution where um, we had CRM on our product roadmap. I'd say the solution that we acquired uh, pulled forward by um, quite a bit of time, what we would have tested, reiterated, tinkered, tested again, yep. uh, and allows us now to kind of really accelerate uh, what we could do with CRM as part of our marketplace and WM business solution. The other acquisition that we made was for a compliance delivery logistics software solution. And it also came with what's called an integrators and connector solution that we're uh, very uh, uh, pleased with. That unlocks a lot of pain points for some of our enterprise clients and also introduces new functionality for anyone that has delivery operations that's a client for, uh, for, for WeMaps. And so all, both acquisitions, what I say, is also um, scrappy entrepreneurs, uh, founder-led businesses, uh, founders across both companies wanted to join uh, WeMaps and, and right. be part of the uh, umbrella of WeMaps companies. Uh, they were very excited about the ability to scale their businesses within uh, within our umbrella. And uh, that's the type of profile that I'd expect us to continue uh, executing on to the extent that we see um, those types of opportunities come our way. So bolt-on capabilities acquisitions where we have the ability to really scale those as part of a differentiated offering within the WM business umbrella. Yeah, because I mean, so often in technology, especially you see a solution that fits a need, you look at it, it's going to take you at least 18 months to knock it off. You're better off buying it because in those 18 months, the other company is going to make 18 months of advances anyhow, and then you're still behind, right? So yeah. that's a, it's a great way to look at things in terms of what's going to fit and be the, the right ancillary businesses to bring into yours. So, um, you know, Arden, we do have to take one more break, but we're going to be back again in a moment with Arden Lee from Weed Maps. I'm Richard Zwicky on The Green Peak. The Green Peak will climb back into your podcast player after we play some messages from our sponsors. And we're back on The Green Peak with Arden Lee, uh, the CFO of Weed Maps. And Arden, you know, we've had discussions on the show before and your visibility into the consumer marketplace is really um, going to be beneficial to this today and going forward in that, you know, in different States, the market has become legalized and, you know, some it hasn't. And if we look at the example that exists in other markets, let's say the Canadian market, which legalized federally, there continued to be a black market operating side by side and the market hasn't been pushed out to being fully in the legal market because of taxes and the tax regime that continues to provide for a mechanism by which cheaper products are available on the black and gray markets. 
as you look at what's happening in the U.S., you know, there's going to be the various steps that are going to occur. You know, eventually safe banking, but that's not going to change consumer behavior much, but that's going to help the businesses on the whole. Then there's going to come legalization over time. And, you know, I, I foresee there's going to be two steps to it. There's going to be medical and then adult use as two different parts. But what do you see as the outlook with regard to how the market's going to evolve and how the consumer behavior is going to change over the next few years? Yeah, it's it's a uh, it. There's a lot of different directions to go with that question, <laughs> but it's a it's a it's a great conversation to have. I, I might start with um, one stat around how to think about the current state of the market today, right? right? Because we get this question, as you might imagine, from a lot of folks, which is, okay, well, tell us how big is U.S. cannabis demand at the moment? And my answer to that um, is yes. <laughs> It's, it's very big. Very big. Exactly. And, yeah, you know, what's interesting is depending on which industry source or analyst that you're reading about, you'll see estimates of total consumer demand within the U.S. anywhere from like, let's call it 80 to 100 billion today. Yep. Now, you'll also see that licensed demand, like that the share that's actually shopping uh, from licensed retailers is only, let's call it 20 to 25 billion of that. And again, I'm ranging right. things because there's so many different, different estimates that, that are out there. And, you know, conversely, that's also one of the reasons why I think a lot of folks um, uh, were are, are drawn to cannabis. It's a little bit like what you see with the EV or the cloud markets, right? Where mm-hmm. it's highly visible TAM, it's just a matter of gas powered to battery powered or on-prem to off-prem, right? And yep. the same principle applies. Now, um, to your question around how we expect these markets to evolve, to evolve, a few things. And I'll first address existing states that have some form of regulation and then move um, outward from there. So within existing states, I think um, one piece that folks don't fully appreciate is retail density. uh, Well, let me put it this way. Existing states that have some form of regulation are dramatically understored relative to any other consumer discretionary category. So for example, absolutely. There is the equivalent of one licensed retailer across all existing states that have uh, some form of regulation. It's, uh, I, I want to say the stat is one licensed retailer for every 25,000 residents, right? And so when you yeah. think about alcohol retail, that density is more like one per four, one per 5K. Pharma retail, it's one per two or 3K. Yeah. Uh, and don't get me wrong, there are certain states like in Oklahoma, as everyone knows, um, that are within that level of density. Uh, but then take our home state of California, where yeah. everyone assumes California a very mature, penetrated market. Well, California, the retail density, licensed retail density is only one per 30-ish K, right? Oh, I know. It's, it's incredible. And, you know, where I am up in Canada, we have yeah. more dispensaries than we have Starbucks. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. And even then, even then, that's probably certain pockets of Absolutely. Canada where, yeah, there's retail deserts. There's area where there's a desert. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And so we're big believers on this idea that um, these existing states will continue to see license issuance. It's a only matter of time. We've seen license issuance pretty consistently uh, over the last several years. I remember that one per 25,000 stat when I first came on board uh, to WeMaps uh, several years ago was like one license per 40,000. So we've made a right. lot of progress uh, just over the last several years and we'll continue to make progress. And as retail density continues to increase, you'll see some of that demand continue to shift over from non-licensed to licensed channels. And then, of course, as new states continue to open up, and what we're seeing with these new states is that the regulatory frameworks feel like um, they're set up for 
better success than uh, prior states that have uh, opened. And so I know a lot of focus uh, currently is around like the tri-state area, right? And yep. you look at uh, the kind of license regulatory frameworks, uh, the amount of licenses that are targeted to go to uh, social equity operators. When you look at uh, the number of counties that have opted in versus other states uh, yep. that are less functioning, uh, it's it's a great fact pattern uh, heading into those markets uh, opening up for uh, for sales. And so we think and, that- And you actually, the- because of your platform, you actually have tremendous insights into where the stores should be located because you see where the users are, what they're searching for, and where the market's underserved for them. That's that, that's right. And so when we think about users, it's interesting because when we think about our um, user stats, we tend to see new areas that we're looking to penetrate with user growth because right. that's what a marketplace is all about. If you build the demand side, then uh, the supply side will naturally follow. And so, uh, yeah, to your point, you know, we do have some of that forward visibility as we think about um, seeding investments on the user and the demand side of the marketplace. And you know, to the to the user point, um, this is another stat uh, that that I think is worth discussing, which is mm-hmm. uh, there's third party out uh, data out there that suggests that only 13% of the population are active cannabis users in the U.S. in any given regulated state. Now, obviously, states, you know, some, some states may be different. Right? Yeah, that's, and there's, that's, that's, yeah. Exactly. And it's basically self-reporting and hope, you know, yeah. using parallels elsewhere. So, Yeah. Now, now, if that's the case, and when I say active users, I'm talking about folks that are consuming at least monthly, not folks sure. that are consuming once, when, once a year. And so, you know, you would think um, to the earlier question around how these uh, start, states and markets are going to evolve, A, Density will continue to increase. New states will come online. Users, um, in theory, will continue to grow. That 13% stat, similar to the retail license density, was a lot lower when I first came on board several years ago. And so, um, again, you you should see this uh, market uh, function like most other consumer discretionary markets with one caveat, which is it will continue to be a very highly regulated um, consumer good. Right. Yes. Uh, I think a lot of folks um, uh, confuse federal regulation with states scrapping the existing regulatory frameworks. And I think that just ignores the reality of the kind of patchwork way that a lot of these regulations uh, have unfolded across the different states that are open. In fact, when federal legalization happens, there's going to be more regulation because there's not just the states, but there's the FDA and others that are going to be involved. And that changes sure. the dynamic dramatically. Yeah, which yeah. is opportunity as well. That is for sure. That is yeah. for sure. So Arden, we are out of time for today, but I'd like to thank you for joining us on the Green Peak. And for people who want to learn more about weed maps, not just you know in terms of your existing users, but the businesses who could benefit from using your platform, how should they contact you or how do you want them to reach out and learn? Yeah, so they can either contact us on our IR uh, email alias, which is investors at weedmaps.com, or they can go straight to our to our IR site, which is ir.weedmaps.com. Fantastic. So thanks for joining us today, Arden, and thanks to everybody for listening. I'm Richard Zwicky on The Green Peak. We'll be back with you again next week.
The opinions expressed on this CannabisRadio.com program are those of the guests and hosts and do not necessarily reflect those of the staff and management of CannabisRadio.com. Any rebroadcast, republication, or retransmission of this program without proper consent is prohibited.